Welcome to the special presentation of St. Gabriel Catholic Radio, Catechesis from the Cathedral. Join Father Adam Streitenberger on a tour of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. In this week's episode, Father covers paragraphs 1949 to 2051, Law and Grace. Here's Father Streitenberger. Enjoy! In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful. Grant us in the same Spirit to be truly wise and ever to rejoice in his consolation. Through the same Christ, our Lord, amen. Name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We continue again our um, tour through our march through part three of the Catechism, Life in Christ. Um, we ended at paragraph 1913. So we're in right now, we're just going to finish up the um, social teaching of the church. And uh, in this section, um, 1913. It talks about how our responsibility and our participation in the public order. So it defines participation is the voluntary and generous engagement of a person in social interchange. It is necessary that all participate, each according to their position and their role. And how do we participate? Well, the Catechism will say, first of all, um, by taking charge of our personal responsibility, uh, which includes uh, many different dimensions, but conscientious work, the education of the family, these kind of things. Second, we participate in the public order through uh, an active role in public life. The Catechism is also going to tell us that this participation also requires um, a realization of the common good and that at times is going to call for ongoing conversion. So this participation, so it's personal responsibility, involvement in public life, at times conversion, a continual renewed conversion, kind of an openness um, to um, greater participation. Then the the Catechism switches to the last section on the social teachings of the Church, which is entitled Social Justice, a word that is, a phrase that is used quite often. And the Catechism defines it for us. It says, society ensures social justice when it provides the conditions that allow associations or individuals to obtain what is their due according to their nature and their vocation. So if you recall, we define the virtue of justice of rendering to God what is due God and rendering to human persons what is rendering to them. So social justice technically means just rendering to those in society what they deserve. And that, of course, is connected to common good. The Catechism is also going to say... that this social justice is also connected to the exercise of authority. 
So a couple principles of this social justice is, first of all, and it's the foundation, and that's the respect for the human person. <clears throat> we began um, this section, part, th we, part three, we began part three by looking at those eight elements of what's the foundation of the dignity of the human person. Um, and so again, the foundation of this social justice of of kind of rightly ordering society, giving the due to those that are members of society, the foundation of it is a respect for human persons. It can um, only be obtained, this social justice, we can only get things in the right order if we respect the transcendent dignity of the human person. And so I think at the, at the heart of the social justice is really having in mind those eight principles of, of what is the core of our human dignity. And if, if we recall those, it is sin, sin and mercy, so the fact that we're able to um, receive the Lord's mercy, that's part of our dignity. Um, our ability to grow in virtue that's part of our dignity, our conscience and the exercise of our conscience, um, our passions and the, the guiding, the, the ruling of our passions, our ability to make human acts, our freedom, um, our call to happiness, and being in the image and likeness of God. These are the sort of the foundations for this transcendent value of the human person. It also, um, this respect for human persons includes the respect for human rights. Um, and it's the church's role to remind us, to remind society of these basic human rights. the kind of the first principle of social justice is that everyone should look upon his neighbor without exception as another self, above all bearing in mind his life and the means necessary for living it with dignity. So we might even kind of connect that to the golden rule, but it's even more to really see the neighbor as an extension of myself. Which is why, in a few more paragraphs down, the Catechism is going to talk about this principle of solidarity. And so already it's anticipating solidarity. The Catechism in 1930, 1933 talks about liberation. Liberation in the spirit of the gospel is incompatible with hatred of one's enemies as a person, but not with hatred of the evil that he does as an enemy. So even if there's disagreement, it, it kind of, the catechism here is giving us grounds for a proper um, kind of civil exchange um, that really um, we, we don't want a hatred of our enemies as a person um, even if we're not particularly happy with the effects of what they've done. 
The next principle or foundation of this social justice of rendering to the others what is right is a remind, reminder of this of the equality and the differences among men, among the human race. So the catechism holds that everyone is equal because everyone is created in the image of God. They have a rational soul. They have the same human nature. They have the same origin. And they have been redeemed by Christ. So equality rests upon this dignity of the human person. And it's from that dignity that all the rights flow. However, there are what we might call natural inequalities. So there are differences between ages, physical abilities, intellectual or moral aptitudes, um, the benefits derived from social commerce, and the distribution of wealth. These things are not distributed equally. So the Catechism cautions that even our equality, if we want to talk about the equality of human beings, it is based in our dignity, not based on these accidents of, of human life. These differences belong to God's plan. Um, nonetheless, they encourage the practice of social justice because they oblige the persons to practice generosity, kindness, and the sharing of goods, and to foster mutual enrichment of culture. However, there, these natural inequalities are also coupled by what are called sinful inequalities. So there are inequalities in society that are not based on God's plan and on natural inequalities and that these contradict the gospel so what is the the catechism quotes um, Gaudium et Spes to kind of identify some of these so um, it, this may be inhumane conditions excessive economic and social disparity between individuals and between different races. Um, so these kind of these kind of principles, we would call them sinful inequalities. And that's why conversion is an ongoing part of our participation in human society, is that those sinful um, inequalities need to be dealt with. The third kind of foundation of social justice, and it's the last part on the church's social teaching in these sections, and that is human solidarity. The Catechism defines solidarity as a friendship or social charity that um, is a direct demand of human and Christian brotherhood. If we use that earlier paragraph, if we use that earlier paragraph, um, on the catechism, from the catechism, the idea then that um, of, of really seeing each other as an extension, as another self. Um, so solidarity um, is manifested 
in the distribution of goods and the remuneration of work. It also um, presupposes a more just social order and um, where tensions are better able to be reduced and conflicts more readily settled. So if solidarity is genuinely embraced, there's really no room for sinful inequality. So we're going, first of all, to recognize that all of the, the wealth within society has been given by God to sustain everyone. So there should not be um, a gross inequality, um, economic inequality, if, if we're practicing human solidarity. Second, um, each individual should be able to find the work necessary to sustain themselves. Because we and they're receiving the just wage to do so. And then finally, um, there really should be no um, racial inequality either um, if we're practicing this human solidarity. The Catechism talks about socioeconomic problems, therefore, can be resolved with this proper solidarity. First of all, by living a solidarity of the poor among themselves, a solidarity between the rich and the poor, a solidarity of workers among themselves, a solidarity between employers and employees, and a solidarity among nations and peoples. And so this calls for not just a solidarity at the national level, but at the international level. And this principle of solidarity isn't just in economic or materialist ways, but really, um, and I would even propose, it's at the heart of living the church. And um, although the catechism doesn't explicitly say this, of 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 evangelization. And Pope Francis does talk about that in the joy of the gospel. He connects solidarity to evangelization. That ends the uh, social teaching of the church. Um, and then, so then the, the catechism switches to chapter three of part three, which basically deals with law and grace. So what's interesting is um, in this section of the catechism, the, um, there's, there's a real discussion about our connection with grace and with justification. And, and all of these things. And it's a lead up to the Ten Commandments themselves. So the first topic is the law. And we, we hear about the law, especially if you've read um, the Old Testament, but then also the letters of St. Paul, is what is the law? So the catechism is kind of helping us to understand this idea of the law. Um, so... In general, law is a rule of conduct enacted by competent authority for the sake of the common good. So that's, in 1951, is the definition for law. Moral law presupposes a rational order, so you have to be, in order for the moral law to apply to you, you have to be 
you have to have reason. You have to be a human. Um, and it, it's been established by God um, to lead us to our final end. So there's law in general, which has been defined. There's moral law. There is what's called eternal law, which is the law of God. Um, and then um, we can we participate in the moral law because we have been created by God according to the eternal law. There, there um, these little distinctions are not the most important I don't I don't think um, but they do help us in moral reasoning and explaining some of the church's teaching so it then goes on there's this concept called the natural law the natural moral law the natural moral law is the moral law the uh, our participation in the moral law so we talk about how because we've been created by God in his image and likeness and because we have a reason, we know how we ought to act or how we should live. It's written into our conscience, um, inscribed in our heart, Paul says. So we use all these different phrases, the moral law, the natural law, all these different kind of, the eternal law. So the eternal law is as it is in the mind of God. The moral law is how one ought to live. The natural law is the moral law written on our hearts. But all of these things are essentially the same law, you know. Of course, um, the natural law is also revealed. So the natural moral law is also revealed in Scripture. And the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, are the summary of that. A lot of people, um, and the Catechism is going to talk about that, so I'll, I'll wait on this little in injection. But the natural law, present in the heart of each man and established by reason, is universal in its precepts and, it ex and its authority extends to all men. So one of the ways that we can call this the natural law is that it, it, it arises because of human nature and because we all share the same human nature we therefore are all bound by the same natural moral law we're reminded that this natural law is immutable it does not change it's permanent throughout the variations of history However, it does, it subsists, it continues under the flux of ideas, customs, and, and supports their progress. So there, you know, I mean, there are shifts in cultures. I mean, we see that very regularly. Um, there's a, a constant development in human culture, and there's a plethora of different human cultures. But there is nonetheless still one moral natural law or natural moral law. It is the foundation um, for the moral rules that we live by, the natural moral law. It's also the foundation or the basis for civil law, which is another 
a whole other type of law. That's the law of the city, you know, what is what is derived for the well-being of the of of society and cultural life. However, there's a problem 1960 1960 points out. The precepts of the natural law are not perceived by everyone clearly and immediately. One of the effects of the fall is this kind of confusion that can arise over the natural moral law. In these situations, and this is why the natural moral law is also, it's not just something we have access to by reason, it's also revealed by God. So that um, we might not fall in error. So one of the, um, we might say one of the reasons why God reveals himself is not just to restore our relationship with him, that we might know him and obtain facts about him, but also that we might have a clear knowledge of what it means to be human and how to live. The Catechism then talks about um, what's called the old law. Now, I don't, I guess, um, I, I'm, not a, I'm not particularly happy with some of the the language that's used um, because it it doesn't resolve some 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 qu- they could have done the catechism could have done a little bit better job of um, of explaining the old law and its relationship to the natural moral law but so I'll try to um, make it clearer for you as we go through this but so the old law refers to the law of Moses, what has been revealed by Moses, revealed to Moses. And it expresses many truths that are naturally accessible to, to reason. So within what we call the Mosaic law, um, the law that's revealed in the Old Testament, a lot of that is the natural moral law. I mean, the Ten Commandments, for instance, are in that. Um, in general though this revelation of the law that we call the catechism calls the old law which I sometimes just refer to as the mosaic law although it's not just in Moses and that's probably why they don't use that phrase Um, the old law is the first stage of revealed law and it's summed up in the ten commandments It serves, first of all, to be like a tutor to teach the Hebrews how they ought to live. So the the natural moral law that's contained in the old law, in the revealed Mosaic law, the law of the Old Testament, is reminding them what they should know already by reason, but which has been affected by the fall. But then um, we might also say, and Paul talks about this too, is it, it's there to help them to remember their special relationship with God. So in the so prior to the incarnation, the mo, the the law, the Mosaic law, is there. You know, like there's all these there's all these principles 
that ground like the very details, that guide the very details of one life, what you can and can't eat, you know, how you're supposed to wash your dishes, how you're supposed to wash yourself, you know. Um, these kind of things, it's, it's supposed to bring in what the incarnation and the life of grace does in Jesus Christ, which is that God is ever-present and ever-concerned with every aspect of our life. So that's what the kind of the Mosaic Law is helping them to do. It also, though, discloses sin, this concept of sin and concupiscence. Because, and this, I mean, this should be no surprise, but the human heart really hides itself from sin, which I think is a good way to interpret Adam and Eve in the garden, you know, when they hide from the Lord. It's not so much shame. I mean, it is shame but it's also this very human tendency to deny that I fall into sin or that sin is possible. And so the law given by Moses and in the Old Testament, um, as St. Paul says, it really is there to teach us about sin and that sin exists and that we, fall, we can fall out of relationship with God. That's paragraph 1963. It has both of those explanations in it. It's also a preparation for the gospel. And then the, the catechism switches and it talks about the new law or the law of the gospel, which is the law that is revealed by Jesus Christ. It is the perfection here on earth of the divine law, natural and revealed. So what Jesus Christ does, what he reveals about the moral life is the fulfillment of natural of the natural moral law and the revealed moral law. This new law um, is the grace of the Holy Spirit given to the faithful through faith in Christ. And I think that's an important point because it's a super important point because everything that we've gone through thus far and everything that we will go through when we go through the Ten Commandments, there's a thought that it, it just resides in me doing things or me not doing things. Um, when we looked at human acts, you know, what's my intention? What's the object that I'm choosing? And this sort of intentionality of, of you know, like of keeping my passions in check, using my conscience as a legislator, not just as a judge in the sense of, of what should I do, you know, pre, you know, kind of thinking ahead of time and being very attentive. This can give us a sense that we have a lot of things to do by our own effort and our own work. Um, and in fact, um, one of the biggest problems in the church in the in for many many years many many centuries and I think it's still a problem now is um, a, a semi-Pelagianism where we somehow think that my salvation and my my life of grace and my fulfillment and happiness and my relationship with God is somehow connected to the the individual works that I do that I somehow can make this relationship. Um, and what this paragraph tells us is that the new law is um, the grace of the Holy Spirit. So the first 
the primary agent in us living the moral life is the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. That's how we live in Christ. And that makes possible, his presence and his living in our life makes possible the living of the moral life. Makes possible me act, you know, using my conscience to anticipate actions. Um, so the gos- the gospel fulfills the old, the law of the gospel fulfills the Old Testament, fulfills the divine promises, fulfills the commandments of the law. Um, it it entails the practices and acts of religion. It is summed up in the golden rule, um, and then the Lord's new commandment to love one another as oneself. And it is um, sub. I, w- we, I wouldn't say supplemented, but it is um, clarified by the writings, especially of St. Paul, on morality. And the Catechism talks about Romans 12 through 15, 1 Corinthians 12 through 13, Colossians 3 through 4, Ephesians 4 through 5. So when we say, what is this new law of Jesus Christ? Where can we pinpoint it? Well, it's really all on the Sermon on the Mount. Now the the problem is is when people hear the Sermon on the Mount they think well it's just the it's the Beatitudes but the Beatitudes were just one part I mean a good chunk of Matthew is is the Sermon on the Mount so all that stuff about divorce all that stuff about lust all that stuff about anger all those things that are in are in Matthew that are you know where Jesus is just like is giving it to him you might say um, that's all part of the new law so it's not as if you know we think that the new law is a reduction of the Old Testament but it's actually an intensification of what has been revealed um, It is the law of love, a law of grace, and a law of freedom. Because it sets us free from that old law, which was, by the way, impossible to follow. The old law was impossible to follow. Paul himself emphasizes that, that it, you cannot live it perfectly. Because the means to live the law is the Holy Spirit. Um, The Catechism also talks about the evangelical councils as a part of this new law. So um, poverty, chastity, and obedience. The aim of the councils is to remove whatever might hinder our development in charity. And then, so then the catechism switches to um, having kind of dealt with the law. So this section of the catechism is important um, because it, it really, this and the next couple sections are really an address to the issues of the Reformation. Um, it's not just kind of a distinction on law and, um, and the different types of law. 
but it's 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 there it's there for a specific reason. Um, and the and the next couple sections really um, really cover it. And if and if people are having issues, you know, explaining the faith to Protestant friends or anything like that, th- this section, paragraph 1987 through 2029 is crucial and you know it's it's absolutely necessary it's a necessary read in the catechism because it gives it gives the right explanation of the catholic understanding of justification and grace and meriting and sanctification and all these things so first of all the catechism says the grace of the holy spirit has the power to justify us that is so what is just what is justification to cleanse us from our sins and to communicate to us the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ and through baptism. So, um, because of the fall, we our relationship with the with God has been broken, um, and we um, have original sin. Um, so justification is the process by which that is undone or the process by which we are restored and elevated. And it is through faith in Jesus. It is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ and through baptism. Romans 3.22 So um, what are the the steps of justification. There are seven points that the catechism lines out, 1889 through 1995. The, f- the first is the work of um, the grace of the Holy Spirit in conversion affecting justification in accordance with Jesus. So first is a movement of grace of man toward God, accepting forgiveness. So even the beginning of this justification is a grace, the the grace to move towards conversion. Second, by justification, which again happens through faith and baptism, um, it detaches us from sin and it purifies our hearts. We... um, we might say that there's a real renewal in the human heart that happens. Number three, justification is at the same time the acceptance of God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. So as we are detached from sin, we accept the righteousness of God, his holiness, his justice, the rectitude of divine love. And it's not, um, it's not just something extrinsic, but it's internal and intrinsic. Our heart is really renewed. Faith, hope, and charity are poured into our hearts. Justification happens. It's merited for us by the passion of Jesus Christ. That paragraph, 1992, says that justification is conferred in baptism, the sacrament of faith. It conforms us to the righteousness of God. So this, again, is it's an inward transformation. 
it's not just you know we're we're just you know we're not just like this pile of manure with snow on top but there's a real genuine renewal we become something new we are renewed Number five, justification establishes cooperation between God's grace and man's freedom. Because we're justified, there's now a restored relationship between our freedom and God's grace. Which is expressed in our ascent of faith, our ability to believe and to submit ourselves to Christ. Um, but also in our ongoing conversion and our cooperation with charity. So because of justification, we are now able to cooperate with God in growing in grace and holiness. And then number six, justification is the most excellent work of God's love. We talk about all the different healings which Christ has done. The greatest healing that happens is the justification of the human person or the forgiveness of sin. And then finally, number seven, by our justification, the Holy Spirit is the master of the interior life. By giving birth to the inner man, this entails the sanctification of his whole being. Again, this entire renewal. If you notice in this, the you know, it is it's very clear. The word you know, our works or whatever are not there until after justification is made possible. And even really like the ascent of faith is is in some way a fruit, a grace of justification. Then the Catechism talks about grace and the different types of grace in 1996. So first of all, grace is defined as a favor the free and undeserved help that God gives us to respond to its call to become children of God, adopted sons, partakers of the divine nature and of eternal life. So it's a a favor, a free and undeserved help that God gives us to respond. So even in, as we said, in the work of justification, that first response of conversion is a grace itself. Which is why the catech- why Catholics n- normally say that we are saved by grace alone rather than by faith alone or by works alone. Um, uh, number two, grace is a participation in the life of God. Um, So it's helping us to understand, to define really what this idea of grace is. Um, And it's therefore supernatural. It it depends entirely on God's gratuitous initiative. It surpasses the power of human intellect and will. Then the catechism 
1999 talks about sanctifying or deifying grace. So it defines these these terms. So what is sanctifying or deifying grace? It's a type of grace um, which is a gratuitous gift from God. That's all grace, really. Um, makes to us of his own life, infused by the Holy Spirit into our soul, to heal it of sin and to sanctify it. It's received in baptism. It is in us the source of the work of sanctification. And it's restored in us in the sacrament of confession. This has been mentioned earlier um, in the catechism, not in this particular section. Sanctifying grace is what is called a habitual grace. So the catechism, um, you know, there are scads of categories of graces in the um, church's traditional theology to the point where it's confusing, you know, and it, and it can overwhelm one. The catechism is pretty succinct. So it's already given us this what we call sanct- this sanctifying or deifying grace which is the grace that we receive in baptism. Sanctifying grace is part of a larger category of grace called a habitual grace, habitual grace, which just like a habit is a stable um, disposition. So it's a, a stable supernatural disposition. It goes on, a habitual grace is the permanent disposition to live and act in keeping with God's call. It's distinguished from another type of of grace called actual grace, which are God's interventions, whether at the beginning of conversion, something that's called um, um, prevenient grace, the grace that kind of begins the process, um, or the grace that comes about through our work of sanctification. So sanctifying grace or deifying grace is a habitual grace, which is this sort of permanent disposition. We talk about being in a state of grace. Um, That's this sanctifying grace, habitual grace, as opposed to actual graces. So the grace of my conversion that led me to habitual grace to sanctifying grace, to my you know justification, um, or throughout the road, the graces that I grow in because of different acts or different you know progress along the way, again only made possible because of the habitual grace, because of the sanctifying grace. So that that this can drive one crazy all these categories, but essentially there are. In the catechism's mind, there are habitual graces, which is really just the sanctifying grace, and then actual graces. The catechism reminds us that the preparation of man to receive grace is already a work of grace. That would be a type of actual grace. God's free initiative... To give grace also demands our free response to grace. So grace does not take away our freedom. We do have to kind of freely accept it. 
um, God immediately touches and directly moves our heart. Um, we nonetheless we have this longing for truth and goodness, um, but nonetheless the, the the grace though it moves our hearts, we the heart freely responds to that movement. You know, and that, and that I think is when I was in seminary, um, the you know we were taught the whole plethora of graces, and there are all these different Latin names for every different type and subtype of grace. And I did not, I did not particularly like that section. Um, and I think. Part of the the issue is that grace is so mysterious, and the intersection of human freedom and grace is so mysterious that when we try to over overly categorize it or um, dissect it, that we really lose something. And and what you do is you, it then just devolves into polemical battles. Um, so we have I I can't quite explain the intersection between our freedom and grace but I know it's there um, and it somehow works you know and it's it's no doubt as mysterious I mean not it's probably even more mysterious than say how the human person falls in love you know this is somewhat mysterious how two people are attracted to each other and at some point fall in love while at, at other points they're not you know they don't so i think that that is an analogy of grace and our freedom is there is some part of movement and some part of response that it's it's very hard to co- completely understand and figure out um grace is first and foremost a gift of the holy spirit who justifies and sanctifies us But grace also includes the gift of the Spirit that grants us to associate with his work. If you remember that by our justification, by that sanctifying grace or deifying grace, we are then able to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. We typically call that meriting. Um, Part of that is also um, the sacramental graces. So this is another type of grace which are proper to the particular sacraments that help us to grow. If you remember when we covered the sacraments, we hit a lot of those. What are the particular sacramental graces of of each of the sacraments? Um, There are also what are called, there are special graces also called charisms, which are for the building up of the church. And then in paragraph 204, there are also graces of state that accompany those who exercise responsibility in the Christian life. And then just to kind of reinforce the mysteriousness of grace, the catechism says, since it belongs to the supernatural order, grace escapes our experience. So even like if we dissect our own experiences, uh, how we've encountered Christ, it's hard for us to make sense of what part was grace and what part was our freedom.
And so therefore, it um, cannot be known except by faith. We cannot therefore rely on our feelings or our works to conclude that we are justified and saved. However, um, according to the Lord's words, thus you will know them by their fruits. So because of the mysteriousness of grace, one, I, I think that means we can't overly analyze the concept of grace too much. But then also, um, we can't we can't take on a presumptive or a despairing role because it's not grace is not going to necessarily manifest itself in feelings um, or in works even. Then the Catechism talks about merit um, in the next section. To merit, we define it, it refers in general to the recompense owed by a community or a society for the action of one of its members. Um, with regard to God, there is no strict right to any merit on the part of man. So merit is a, a free gift. The merit of man before God in the Christian life arises from the fact that God has freely chosen to associate man with the work of his grace. So because God has freely given us the grace of justification and we've, we have been affected by it and accepted it, it is then that we are now associated with his work. So because of my baptism, all that I do now is associated with the work of God and therefore takes on an eternal value. That's really the concept behind meriting. <clears throat> then the Catechism has a, a brief section on Christian holiness. Um, that it, you know, we tend towards a more intimate union with Christ to the fullness of Christian life and the perfection of charity. This way of perfection passes through the cross. Um, and we finally, we hope for the grace of final perseverance. Um, which is in itself a grace, the grace to persevere. Then um, the Catechism talks about the church as the mother, and this is where I'm going to end today, the church as our mother and teacher um, um, in the moral life. So basically the church's role in, in the moral teaching. Um, and it really begins with the idea that the church is the pillar and bulwark of the truth, um, that the pastors of the church, the magisterium, the, bish the bishops in communion with the pope, um, exercise in their catechesis and preaching um, this um, ability to teach on moral issues. So because moral issues deal with our salvation and the salvation of our souls, um, the church has an authoritative role in teaching and interpreting what that entails. Of course, she is um, only, you know, interpreting from the deposit what has been received and handed on. 
Um, the ordinary and universal magisterium of the, of the Pope and the bishops in communion with him teach the faithful the truth to believe, the charity to practice, the beatitude of the hope to hope for. So this um, infallibility also includes teaching authoritatively on the moral law, um, including the specific precepts of the natural law. So the argument can be and, and would be that, well, the natural law is accessible to anyone who has a human nature and, and a reason. Um, and so therefore, everyone can be their own magisterium. You know, like I interpret what the, the moral law is. But we are reminded of, again, what this was hit with the conscience, that there's the possibility of an erroneous conscience, and that one of the effects of the fall is a lack of clarity when it comes to even the natural law. Um, so the church has this authority given to her by Christ to even interpret the precepts of the natural law. Because following the natural law is necessary for our salvation. So the church, the people have the right to know um, this moral teaching, and the pa and the pastor and the duty to observe them. And then it ends with the five precepts of the church, which are somewhat neglected. So the church says, in order for one really, and if we might translate it into other terms, in order for one to really be a follower of Christ, to really live as um, a, a disciple of Christ, as a member of the church, there are five kind of crucial things, necessary, the very necessary minimum, to maintain the spirit of prayer. Um, and the first is, you shall attend Mass on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation and rest from servile labor. That's sometimes extended to Holy Days of Obligation as well. So the first is, you go to Mass every Sunday and Holy Day and rest on Sunday. The second is to confess your sins at least once a year. The third is that you should receive the Eucharist at least during Easter season. The fourth is you shall observe the days of fasting and abstinence established by the church. And the fifth is to um, provide for the needs of the church. the five precepts. So go to Mass every Sunday and Holy Day um, of obligation. Confess your sins once a year. Receive communion sometime during Easter. Um, ob observe the days of fast and abstinence and then provide for the needs of the church. Um, again, these are, you know, the church asks us to do these things as um, to ensure kind of the minimal necessary 
for a spirit of prayer. Before we, uh, so next week what we're going to do is launch into um, the intro section on the Ten Commandments and then also the First Commandment. Um, so we're going to go there. So we will begin next week on 2052. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. This is listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio. You've been listening to Catechesis from the Cathedral with Father Adam Streitenberger. If you'd like to listen to this episode again, download it, or share it with a friend, please visit stgabrielradio.com, go to our audio archives, and look for Catechesis from the Cathedral. Thanks so much for joining us today. God bless, and have a great day.